Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why is it really hot in here? I should turn the AC on. I don't know, something. Really excited to have our guest on today. We have Frederick Grefsky joining us from Boston. Frederick, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming. It's great to have you. So this is part of Maintainer Month which is a short series of podcasts we're doing to highlight the roles of maintainers and the work they do. Doing this in collaboration with GitHub, but also just for fun. So my first question, Frederick, is are you a maintainer? And what are you a maintainer of? Yes, I'm a maintainer of two open source projects in the Rust ecosystem. One is called Cargo Semper Checks. It's a linter to ensure your crates adhere to semantic versioning, which is surprisingly important in the Rust ecosystem. And the other is called Trustful, which is a query engine able to query any combination of data sources. So semantic versioning makes a lot of sense. Been solved a while ago. Why is it more important in Rust than other things? It's not at all obvious, but it's much easier to mess up semantic versioning in Rust. And also, it's much easier for that to have much more serious consequences than it would say in Python. So Rust has features called auto traits. These are traits that the compiler will implement on any type that is able to implement them. So you don't really see them in the source code. They're just kind of there in the background. But they're also part of your public API. And if your crate happens to no longer implement some of those auto traits and some of those types, that is a breaking change. So whereas in most languages, the act of making a breaking change requires you actively making a change in your code that looks breaking, like deleting a function or deleting a type, in Rust, you get sort of these spooky action at a distance Semver violations. And that can be really unfortunate because this is going down to the why is it more impactful side. You tend to only find these out when you publish a new version and then somebody else's crate downstream fails to compile. And now they're unhappy, they open an issue, and now you have a fire drill to deal with. Why did I break all of my downstream consumers and why is their stuff broken? And this process is not necessarily easy. Frequently, it can end up being a complicated triage process because, like I mentioned, the breaking change isn't necessarily in the place where it showed up. The place that is broken is not necessarily something that had a code change applied to it directly. The code change that broke everything could be somewhere completely different. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Totally understand. And I also see why it's particularly an issue in Rust. But also Semper in general is amazing. Now, I live in an American city. I live in Vermont. And... When I drive a road and I see a pothole, if it gets really bad, I may even call my city and say, hey, fix the pothole. And sometimes I'm angry when I do that. I try not to be, but, you know, concerned <laughs> citizen at large. And I'm okay calling them because I know they're paid. Why would you volunteer for that job? Because that's what it sounds like you're doing. Yes, absolutely. I think I was just in a much better position to address this problem than the average person in the Rust ecosystem. The reason Cargo Semper Checks is possible is because it builds on top of Trustful, which is the other project that I'm a maintainer of. Semper by itself feels like it should be very straightforward as a problem. If you find a function that existed in the previous version and doesn't exist in the new one, that's a breaking change. If you find a type that existed in the previous version and doesn't exist in the new one, that's a breaking change too. So there are a couple of dozen or a couple hundred or maybe a thousand rules like this. But in principle, it just feels like you should just be able to write down all of these rules, and then just be done. You know, never have to deal with them again. And yet in practice, this has proven pretty difficult. And it's proven pretty difficult for unfortunate real-world reasons that we don't necessarily think about a priori. 
And in fact, there have been multiple prior efforts to build Semper checkers in Rust that have more or less failed for maintainability reasons. They ended up being too expensive to keep working from day to day. There was a lot of work that needed to happen to keep the tool working as well tomorrow as it did yesterday. And so Cargo Semper Checks takes advantage of the fact that Trustfall allows it to have this stable foundation where you can just write down these sorts of rules, like find functions that don't exist anymore in a way that is not necessarily connected to the underlying shape of the data source. In other words, if the input data set changes shape, changes format, changes representation, our rules don't have to change. We can still write these rules in a way that is agnostic to how the data is actually represented under the hood because the business logic of semantic versioning has not changed. So I like all this and it makes a ton of sense to me. However, it's not answering the question I asked. You're talking about the technical reasons for why this is a thing. I asked why you personally volunteered to get the flack from all these other people for when their things break. To be perfectly honest, it felt like a really good value for money proposition for me, in a sense, cool. where you know time is money in this case. I felt that with a very small amount of effort, I could have a very large impact on the community. And Trustful is a project that I care dearly about. It's the culmination of eight years of my work. And so from my perspective, I get to contribute to the community. I get to solve a very difficult problem that people care about solving in a uniquely elegant and for me, not particularly expensive way. And as a result of that, I get to put my money where my mouth is. Either Trustful is a really good piece of infrastructure. And so this should be a relatively straightforward tool for me to build and maintain. Or I'm just completely way off base here and I've been wasting my time for the last eight years or so pursuing this kind of technology. Story of my life. Now, <laughs> recently we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about separating authors from maintainers. They're different roles, even though they're often the same person. And when I think of an author, I often think of this magical point in time where like there was one weekend where they're like, oh man, I got to build this. So they build it and then the rest of the time they're like, no, I'm out. But it sounds like for you, the value prop actually continues to give you benefits. Would you say that's true? Would you say that authorship is an ongoing experience as well as maintaining? I do think so. There are a couple of things that I really care about and that I get to benefit from both directly and indirectly as a result of working on this project. One of these things is helping people who are early in their career break into the world of software engineering and especially find people who are willing sort of more than average to work really hard and hopefully learn a lot in a very short period of time. I'm one of those people that believes that number of years of experience is an extremely poor predictor of competence, whether in software or otherwise. And so I'm very dedicated to finding people who are shockingly early in their career and shockingly competent despite that. I actually have a saying wrote a blog post recently about how I've been playing hockey for 10 years now. And surprisingly, I haven't made it onto my hometown's NHL team. You'd really think that by now, with 10 years of experience, I should have been a senior hockey player, if not a staff plus hockey player on the team. And yet, you know, here I am in the stands just watching the games or behind the TV screen more often. So by working on Cargo Semper Checks, I get to not only show that Trustfall is a good idea and a good investment on my part to build it. But I also get to give opportunities to people that are very interested in breaking into open source development. And in fact, I've worked with multiple people who are still in college to help them break into the world of open source development and get some valuable real world experience and even end up writing a thesis on the work that they've done. 
And some of the work that they've done is absolutely spectacular. So I have zero regrets on how I've spent my time there. I like the hockey metaphor. I also wish I was playing for the NHL. I've never played hockey a day in my life, but I imagine that if I picked up a stick, I'd be the new Gump Worsley. But my question for you, Predrag, is how do you rule out people who aren't competent yet? Where competency takes time to grow. Isn't that also a thing? It definitely does take time, but it's not the only factor to look for. I think it's also very important to notice when somebody manages to outperform their peers. So in some sense, mediocrity can be a predictor of excellence. If you find somebody who has never really had any sort of formal computer science education, all they've had is a computer and internet connection and no real mentorship, no real books or pointers or help breaking into the industry. If they make it as well as somebody that had every opportunity that they've had in their life, I know who I would be betting on for long-term success. So I'm really hoping to find people who are outperforming their peers, outperforming their environment, outperforming what you might have expected from them, not knowing anything about them as a person, just on the basis of the surrounding circumstances of their life. And if we can manage to find those people who are already doing exceptionally well with the circumstances they've had, I firmly believe that by giving them much better circumstances, we can empower them to do really, really amazing work. So yes, there is a time investment that is necessary here. They do need to get the right sort of experience. But this is something that I had growing up. I had a lot of opportunities that were given to me when certain people noticed that I was doing sort of better than what might have expected in my environment. And I'm just really looking to pay that forward because it was so impactful in my own life. So when you talk about your projects that you're maintaining at the moment, what does the onboarding for maintainers look like? Do you have a suite of maintainers that you work with? Are you looking in the GitHub issues for people who are cool who could help maintain the projects with you? I'm trying a few different things. So one thing is I try to mark issues as e-mentor. So that says... I'm willing to mentor someone to take over implementing this issue. And I've hand-selected the issues that I think are reasonable starting points. I also try to keep an eye out for folks that are trying to break into industry. So for example, I got connected to four students in Poland who were looking for a bachelor's thesis project. And they specifically wanted to work on something in the Rust open source tooling ecosystem. And I connected with them. I offered them the opportunity to work on cargo server checks with my mentorship. And that's something that they accepted. I try to not necessarily have the one true funnel for contributing to the projects that I'm involved with and more just kind of keep my eyes open and try to embrace opportunities as they arise, find people where they are and not necessarily expect people to discover my own process, discover my own repositories and projects. It sounds like you're really personally motivated to help other people given that you yourself have been helped out, which is awesome and cool. Have you ever gone through burnout? Have you ever found it difficult to give back to other people and difficult to help other people? Yes, definitely. For me, at least, those two tended to be sort of not necessarily related to each other. I think burnout is an effect of, I am putting a lot of effort into this project and the payoff is not either visible to me or is not in an axis that I personally care about. And that's something that I think is very important to stay on top of as a maintainer. It's not necessarily connected to the mentorship angle for me. For the mentorship side, I will freely admit that I am not the best person for every kind of person. And so what I try to look for in people is folks who are very intensely driven at getting better. So I'm very happy to give people feedback, but not everyone is equally 
sort of interested in applying that feedback rapidly and growing and sort of not making the same mistake twice. And I try to be very explicit with people going into this that there are certain kinds of people that I'm a very good fit for as a mentor. And there are certain kinds of people that through no fault of their own, we are just not a great fit for mentorship. And when that happens, I try to be very explicit with people. I try to have an honest conversation. And I honestly think that just leads to better outcomes for everyone because otherwise, it's just not great when there's just an impedance mismatch and you're just still trying to force something through. It just ends up being frustrating on both sides. And it's just better to have a clean break and spend our time working on other things and finding a hopefully more productive match somewhere else. I couldn't agree more with that. Our question around values, though. So early on, you talked about your value prop for working on the projects you work on. You can do the most amount of good for the largest amount of ecosystem with the smallest amount of time. And it feels good to you, right? Your ego gets super soothed by doing hard problems well. That's pretty clear. No offense. I hope that's not a shock to you, but that's what I'm taking. Not at all. I absolutely love finding things that people say, oh, this should be impossible, and then figuring out the fastest way to actually build it. MIT syndrome, the best. Question I have for that is when you're talking about onboarding, say bachelor students from Poland, you've already solved the cool problem. Do you have other problems that are hanging out? Because their value prop is less than yours if you're onboarding maintainers to a project where you've already done the thing. So how does that work with value alignment? Ooh, respectfully, I have to push back. I think that by starting on Cargo Sember checks, I just opened a huge can of worms here. And so, (laughs) absolutely. And so more than I solved the value prop and there's just sort of nothing else to be done, I just think there's 50 other interesting directions to take the project from now. And so instead of telling people, hey, welcome to the project, here's the thing that you're going to be working on. What I really believe in is laying out sort of a menu of options and saying, hey, which of these 10 different things, 10 different directions of taking the project are you interested in working on? And I'm very happy to describe the possible impacts that people might have, whether this is how the specific project is going to get better, or this is how the community's perception of this project is going to change, or who's going to benefit from this change. The tool will get faster, the tool will get more capable, the tool will be more easy to adopt in a wider array of projects or something like that. And I really believe in allowing people to figure out what drives them and then picking from that menu as best as possible. So I kind of more see myself as curator of the options around the project, as opposed to the sort of more company-centric, you know, manager. Welcome to the team. Here's your job. Sit down, put your head down, and start turning out some code. And I think that's been extremely successful. This team of students that I've been working with has made a spectacular impact both on the project and on the community. And that's something I'm incredibly proud of. I'm really glad you mentioned that last word, community, because I'm noticing a lot of focusing on your methods and your strategies, which isn't bad. This is actually a podcast with, say, you. One of my questions is, how are you giving up power and giving up governance rights in order to help other people have the same level of, say, mentorship that you would like, that you have? What are you doing to ensure that you're not just one player in these ecosystems? Absolutely. Cargo Sanford Checks right now is a separate tool that people have to install separately. It isn't bundled with the Rust programming language. You just have to run a cargo install command to actually get it. Going forward, the long-term plan is to integrate it into cargo itself. And so instead of running it as a separate command, it's something that should just run automatically for you when you run cargo publish. This 
automatically means that I am no longer the most important fish in the sea for this project. It no longer is just the thing that one person with the help from a wide variety of other contributors scrunched together in some free time. And instead, it's the thing that hopefully the Rust ecosystem benefits from for a very long time, but also a very large number of people maintains, contributes to, has opinions on the continued evolution of. So I've tried to work very hard with the folks that are maintaining cargo and just in general, the Rust community to figure out how should this tool be structured? What features should it have? Which things make sense from a design perspective? What are the reasonable defaults for its various options? And things like that. And I obviously have my own opinions about these things. But ultimately, the project will have failed if 20 years from now, I'm the person that has to make every single one of these decisions. So my job is to make sure that the project is set up on a path towards success. And that path towards success should not involve me on the critical path. Now, you mentioned your blog. I linked to mediocrity can be a sign of excellence in the show notes. Do go check it out, listener peeps. Drag, where is that blog and where can it be found on the interwebs? My name is pretty tricky to spell, which has the benefit of allowing me to have my own name as my domain. So it's predr.ag. And my blog is at predrag slash blog. Excellent. That's predr, P-R-E-D-R-A-G and dot A-G for the blog. Antigua, what is that? Which Antigua and Barbuda. Excellent. Beautiful countries. I once lived there. Absolutely amazing. Oh, sweet. Predrag, thank you so much for coming on. This was absolutely excellent. I really enjoyed your enthusiasm and your willingness to just jump in and open up the can of Shai Huluds. That is a rare thing and it's just really wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Listeners, we have another podcast coming on after this one. We're trying to do two podcasts in a row for this special maintainer month thing. So do stick around and thank you so much. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Has anyone hit the record button? These are the important questions of our day. Very excited to talk about them here with our guest today. Before I introduce him, however, I want to say that this is a Maintainer Month episode. As part of a month-long celebration of maintainers. We're talking to a few of them to learn about their experience maintaining or working on code. And for this episode, I have another one of my co-hosts from the Sustaining Open Source Design podcast and the Sustained podcast as well. We have the illustrious and illuminable Errol Fox. Errol, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing even better with two very long words attributed to myself, which I will look up the meaning of later. Illuminable. Illuminable is not a word. I made it up. But anyway, our guest today is Kingsley. We have Kingsley Pandiok, who's joining us today from Nigeria. Hello, Kingsley. How are you doing? Hi, Richard. Hi, Earl. I'm actually doing great over here in Nigeria. And it's really great to meet you both on this podcast. It's really great to have you. So for those of you who don't know, Kingsley is a UX designer. That's right. He works on user experience and brand identity designer deeply committed to open source design as well. He's done a lot of things in both B2B and B2C product design and has worked with a lot of open source communities. As a freelance worker, he's done a lot of stuff with Chaos Africa, where he's helped make significant contributions to improving the rate of designer contributions to the project, which is hard, so good work. He's also a contributor to OSCA. That's right, Open Source Community Africa Festival. 
which is the largest festival of its type, basically in Western Africa, in Nigeria. Super, super cool. Kingsley is driven by his passion for inclusivity and is devoted to making the open source design space more accessible, more diverse, and more collaborative for any designers who want to contribute. So Kingsley, my first question for you is because this is maintainer month, when you're putting on your coding or your design hat, do you think of yourself most often as a designer or as a coder or maintainer? I'm curious. So I think myself more of a designer than a maintainer because I was a designer first before the maintainer name was ascribed to me. And I think the maintainer is just more of a position, but design is just what you get to do, actually, and managing other designers contributing to the project. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your experience becoming a maintainer and your experience of being a designer contributing in open source. And if you wanted to talk about some of the challenges that you faced as a designer in the space or some of the really great things, the celebrations of community or other aspects that have been really positive for you, I'd love to hear. I think for us, it's also cool to mention Chaos and that I contribute to Chaos Africa. Of course, I serve there too as a design maintainer. And Chaos Africa is a subset of Chaos Global. Chaos is a Linux foundation project focused on creating metrics and models and software to better understand open source community health on a global scale. So how did I get to contribute you know, to Chaos Project? That was actually nine months ago. And Chaos happens to be my first dive at open source contribution. So I actually been curious about open source contribution. There's actually been a whole lot of that happening here in Nigeria and a lot of persons talking about it, actually. So I was pretty much curious about it, did a lot of research, and of course connected with a friend who actually introduced me to Chaos Africa. And I started contributing, but I think just jump into contribution right away. Two months into the project, I was absolutely lost. I didn't know exactly how to start contributing or making design contributions to the project. And I spent actually a lot of time trying to research and understanding what the project was all about. But then I think my first contribution started out when I realized I could make a flyer design for Twitter spaces. Of course, as a designer, when something is sort of off, like just some random stuff, maybe someone uses maybe some kind of drag and drop to fix and you feel like, oh, I can make this better. So I think that was how I started off my contribution. And then eventually, I was now able to contribute to some bigger projects we have ongoing in the community. I have a question about that. I think it's really easy to get started with helping out to design. You go into a project, you maybe have a friendly maintainer on staff or something, and you say, hey, I want to help out. And then you design a logo or you look at their readme and try to figure out what the DX is. But I feel like the long tail of open source design is a lot harder to do. I think it's more difficult once you've already been in the project for three months to find new ways of contributing. You said you've been working with Chaos Africa for nine months. Do you feel that that's the case? Yeah, I think it took me first two months after to exactly know how to start making contributions project. Well, maybe he's saying this is going to be like a rule of thumb for every designer who wants to join. So thankfully, Chaos Africa probably helps solve that problem so you don't have to wait for like two months. But then besides the logo flyer design, I think it's also important that designers who want to contribute to 
open source projects understand that it's not like a regular job where the PM assigns the responsibility or tasks to you on Shello, on Jira. It's just all about you know, being open to solving problems, actually. Because what you find in most communities is that uh, sometimes you join a community as a designer. I've actually interacted with other designers contributing to projects, so I get some of this feedback. So you join a community and perhaps you don't really have like laid out tasks, right? For each people, maybe I'm supposed to do these, maybe work on a certain UI component or libraries or some sort. And some communities don't even have design systems or style guide that will help you. But then as a designer, when you join the community, actually using the word the designer, anybody can fall into this category as long as you do anything related to design. So once you come into the community, I think it's also important that you look at first understand the projects because you can't contribute to a project you don't understand. So look at the things you can help fix in the community. So and it could also be non-design issues. And of course, as a designer, you should be able to empathize with users of a certain product. So you can conduct user research on a certain product that is being developed and you can help, of course, fix other issues that I feel like there are a lot of issues designers can actually work on. Because what happened to me too was that for the first two months, I was probably waiting for someone to tell me, oh, Kingsley, this is supposed to work on, this is supposed to work on. But I actually didn't get that. So what I now did was after I actually took up time understanding the project, I now saw a lot of things I could help do to make the community and the project better. So there are actually a lot of things designers can do just beyond logo design, flyer design, because logo is sort of like a one-time thing. So after the logo, what else do you do? Understanding the project just help solve that issue. I'd love to ask a question about the future. And it sounds like a lot of the amazing work that you've been doing is really impactful. And I think we had a previous conversation about a lot of the efforts that you've gone to about onboarding with designers. And I'd love to hear you talk about onboarding designers and making projects more welcoming for designers and inclusive of different cultural differences. So when I joined Chaos Africa, sorry, I'm using Chaos constantly as a reference, but I feel like this actually my first experience. And I'm also saying this because I had also this experience when there's a certain open source project, I, I won't mention the name for some reason, I actually tried contributing to after I joined Chaos Africa and I actually encountered the same challenge and that had to do with the onboarding process. And of course, when I initially joined Chaos Africa too, I had this challenge with onboarding. So I can't speak for other working groups. By working group, I mean like the global working group, the project managers working group. I can at least speak specifically to design working group. So we didn't really have a structure where designers get to understand what the project is about first. And then where do I start contributing? Or where exactly do I start? Signal well, where do I go to? Is there a defined design system I can follow and all that? So some of the things I tried to address when I began to understand the project. So what I did personally was I created a document that I personally listed out the things I really understood about the project. And of course, also made it open to other contributors because there were designers in the project before I joined. I was the first designer. So the old members, old contributors, right, that also understood the project better. And I made the document open and everyone shared their ideas on how they understood a certain part of the project. And I felt like it's better when you explain what you understand better to someone else 
Now we made the document open. So as you join the community, maybe after spending a while in the community and you tend to understand certain things better, you can go back and review the document. And now what this has done is that a lot of persons join and before you start contributing, we refer you to this document. And I think it's just a few minutes to read and you're able to get the graphs of what case is about. And of course, the project is ongoing and where to jump on as a designer starting out. And of course, we also, as part of the onboarding process too, was a design system created by still ongoing to also help designers know the components I use, the color and everything. So these and a lot more just things that were just confusing. And these are some of the things that I also help, innovations I help bring into the system and help make the whole process better. Then talking about culture, you know, of course, here in Africa, we have lots of other people contributing to the project. So not just in Nigeria. So we have a lot of other people from different parts of Africa contributing to the project. So some of the things we also look at, of course, is inclusiveness when it also comes to even meetings, time to see actually a whole lot about that. Things even down to language you use, the jokes you make. You know, in Nigeria, we have little slangs in Nigeria. And you just have to be conscious enough not to use that in a space where people don't really know what you're talking about. And these are some of the things, you know, culture we try to address. So in order to make other people feel more like a more a part of this project. And a few other issues I do hope maybe in the course of time we'll be able to address and make other people feel more inclusive and feel appreciated in the project. But for now, I feel like these are some of the core issues I've been able to address by virtue of my position as a mentor on the project. Thank you. I really like that you mentioned the language problem and just the difficulty of trying to make it accessible for a lot of new people. I'm curious in general, what do you wish you knew before you became a designer? What have you learned that you just didn't expect at all? Of course, when the design maintainer, the African design maintainer, the African community maintainer, that's the Ruti Kenga, I think a few months into contributing to the project, was the one who reached out and was like, Kinsley, I'm seeing a couple of stuff you're doing. Perhaps you could just assume the role of maintainer, the design maintainer. And uh, I think one of the things I didn't expect was that maybe one of the things I'll be handling will be like conflict resolution <laughs> amongst design contributors. Because I think three or four months into the project, we had a couple of tags out there and we had some set of contributors and a particular one at some point was done what she was doing and to jump on another tag, which was made for someone else. I didn't really want to go into details, but a little conflict actually came from that. For me, I think it was just a difficult situation to handle. And I really wanted to handle things such that at the end of the day, both of them will still remain in the community and contribute and not be responsible for them leaving the community. So I think at the end of the day, we're able to handle that. So I really hope maybe someone had told me part of the things you'll be doing will be conflict resolution and not just design. Maybe that would have helped. So Kingsley, you're doing amazing work right now. It sounds like you're really working with Steam, like moving forward with some really great stuff to be inclusive for designers in these open source projects, but I would love to hear more about what you want to see change in open source projects projects generally or in the open source culture to maybe make design more inclusive or if there's anything else that you want to see change 
for designers in open source in the future, or maybe a project that you've always wanted to work on or with? I think moving forward, one of the things I would really love to see as a major change in open source community is having more designers coming to open source projects. So currently, Nigeria, I feel like when you compare the ratio of developers to designers contributing to open source project, the balance still tilts a lot towards the development aspect rather than design contribution. And because perhaps maybe previous contributors, you know, at some point, maybe unknowingly, made it look more of a development or a developers thing than design thing. I feel like moving forward, I really want to see designers come in and this whole culture of feeling that, oh, maybe I'm a graphic designer and maybe my roles or what I'm supposed to do to flyer design or maybe logo design or any of those merchandise and all that actually hold on to when you look at yourself beyond just pushing pixels and being a problem solver, like creative problem solver. So you always realize that there's so much you can do to open source, make the open source ecosystem much better. So I really want to see more designers, right? Different skills, motion design, 3D design. Of course, if we have open source softwares out there, we need to get the best experience, right? And uh, the best interface and all that. And we have lots of designers out there that don't think they belong here. Understand? So another thing to a more inclusive atmosphere too for designers to, to also contribute. And maybe it could be in terms of communication between the designers and the developers because it seems to be a wall right now. Maybe, I don't know, because some designers feel like, why need GitHub? Or GitHub seems to be like a developer thing and all that. Maybe GitHub could do something to really tell designers, like, you can use our tool. Maybe all that things communities can really do to make designers understand that, oh, you can be a part of what we are doing. So it's not just about the whole coding thing and all that. You can be a integral part of what we are doing. And another thing too is that moving forward, there's a lot of technologies coming up right now. AI, low code, we are all talking about low code, no code right now. And for someone like me that is also curious how that's going to impact open source collaboration, because I'm kind of like seeing things on the bright side. But then I want to believe that it's going to also be a huge opportunity for designers to also make contribution. Right now, because since the attention is moving from a lot of coding to less of coding, so I think user experience will really be a thing. And this is also a role designers can come in and make impact on the project. So for me, there's no future in open source without design. I love that statement. There is no future in open source without design. I could not agree more. I really love that. Kingsley, you know a lot. And I'm curious, where could people read more about your words on the interwebs? Okay, thank you, Richard. LinkedIn, on Idiom, and on Instagram. So if you're not type that probably want to read long articles, so I do some posts on Instagram where I just pick some quotes and all that. So just easy for you to grab the point. But if you also could read in, I have a couple of articles on Medium. I think I shared the link. And also sometimes put up this thing right over LinkedIn from Feinstein and sometimes also featured on Chaos Wiki. So these are some of the places you can also find my talks about open source and design. Excellent. Do check out 
Kingsley's LinkedIn. Highly suggest it. You'll notice on his LinkedIn that he is currently looking for his next role. So if you're listening and you need a good designer or you need help getting designers into your projects, do reach out. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and look at more. And you can find podcasts at the same OSS.org is where all of our episodes are, as well as the show notes for this episode. If you have any thoughts, you can send an email to podcast at sustainoss.org. That'll go to all the hosts. And we'd love to hear any comments as well as any other guests we should have on. We also have a discourse at sustainoss.org if you want to go and talk about things. A thread will be put for this conversation where anyone can look and make comments. People rarely do, but I think they should. So maybe that could be you. And also please like this podcast and talk about it with other people. We don't do any advertising, so it's all word of mouth. So the more you do, the more listeners we have, the more we can have conversations like this in the future. Kingsley, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You are really clear on the ecosystem. This was like incredibly awesome. So thank you so much. And Errol, of course, it's always a pleasure to have you on as a co-host. Thank you as well. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Errol. It was really great talking to you both. Thank you. Bye. See you, Oscar.